So reading today is from Job chapter 1, and it's on page 500 of the Bibles in the pews. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing.
Everyone, again, it's um, really is nice to be with you. Just to be clear, I will not be leading singing next week. <laughs> Please come. <laughs> hey, uh, could you do me a favour and um, get uh, page 500 of your Bibles open? I'm going to be looking at that. And it's, um, it's key that you can see um, the words of Scripture, I think. So page 500, Job chapter 1. I'm going to pray and then I will get down to, down to business, down to the Lord's business, that is. Heavenly Father, thank you for... Um, being an extraordinary God, and thank you that you are a God who speaks. And Lord, speak to us now, we pray, and uh, let us be people who change in response to your speech. Amen. There's a verse in the New Testament that says these words, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. It's a great verse. And uh, that verse was upon my mind when I um, found out that one of my sons in utero uh, had severe kidney kind of issues, health issues. Um, they were life or death issues. And uh, the doctors would never, well, weren't able to tell us whether he would live or die, whether he would make it. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. second half of that pregnancy was a, a testing uh, time, a, a real time of trial. I remember um, kind of round after round of seeing the specialists. Uh, I remember, I, I learned very quickly, they would always pause and kind of frown before they deliver more difficult and bad news. Uh, I remember how little some of the babies were in intensive care in Westmead, where we stayed for um, 10 or 12 days. And uh, my son is all right now, praise Jesus. And we try not to take that for granted. Uh, And he does have scars that he will carry, big ones, uh, right across his lower back that he will carry for the rest of his life. It always seems a bit unfair to get them when you're only three days old. You know, you think you should be allowed to wait till you're 7 or 14 or 42 and do something stupid to get them. But I think they're a testament to the mercy of God. And as I think about it, we all carry scars of one kind or another, don't we? So I was uh, so grateful to have those words from the New Testament imprinted on my spirit beforehand. They say um, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And it certainly does help to be prepared for trials and suffering. And today we're starting a four-week series in the Old Testament book of Job so that we might be prepared or forearmed for the day of testing, the day of trial. Now actually, as as it turns out, the book of Job is not just about suffering. We're also going to hear what Job says about evil, that very problematic question of evil, um, what the book says about God, what it says about faith. And I think uh, it'll be food for our souls right now as well as being good preparation for the days of trouble that lie ahead. And just before we get into the topic for today, what Job says about suffering, we need to just kind of work out a few things about the book because it's very intriguing. It's an intriguing Old Testament book. Um, We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. Uh, Its main character, Job, he's depicted as an extremely wealthy pastoralist with large herds and flocks so kind of maybe he's a contemporary of um, Abraham which would make him amongst the oldest figures in the Old Testament but then you read there in uh, chapter 1 verse 1 he he came from the land of Uz uh, which was 
outside the land of Israel. So he's um, not obviously an Israelite, though he obviously worships the God of Israel. Uh, some people think this whole story is kind of a bit of a fable, a bit of a fairy tale. Others think that he's a real guy. I mean, he's spoken of uh, by the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel and in the New Testament letter of James as if he is a real guy, not some kind of character from an elaborate fairy tale. And so whether, where you kind of come down to that particular question, the book itself is a very carefully crafted document. It's intriguing. It's not just uh, a story that's told in a very kind of run-of-the-mill pedestrian kind of way. It has a real dramatic, epic, literary feel to it. And I want to show you very quickly how it works before we get into things. The first two chapters uh, is an opening bookend, uh, and it's in a, obviously a crafted narrative kind of style where God and Satan do business. And as we just heard, Job cops an absolute bruising. And uh, our youth minister, Nath, he was really helpful in helping me see the kind of location matters in those first two chapters. It's almost as if we're standing not just in the heavenlies, but even above the heavenlies. And we're seeing God and Satan accept a wager and Job cops a bruising. Then uh, chapters 3 to 37, so the, the vast majority of the book, there's kind of rounds of conversations between Job and his friends. And really there we're sitting with Job and his buddies in the ashes, ground level. And uh, it's very tempting to skip over those chapters because they do sort of go round and round in circles. Um, but we're going to try and dip into them as much as we can. Then in chapters 38 to 41, there is um, a pretty one-sided conversation, as it turns out, between God and Job, where God answers Job out of a storm. And it's as if we're at 30,000 feet in the whirlwind before the, the final closing book end in chapter 42, where Job and God kind of tie together some loose ends. So uh, just keep that in mind. It helps to kind of understand how the book works when we try to understand its message. Um, but the particular issue we're having a look at today is what Job says about suffering. About suffering. And uh, the first contribution the book of Job makes to the question of suffering is that suffering's real. It's a real part of life. It is even a part of the lives of believers. Though we are promised all the riches of eternal life, suffering is very much a reality for us. And if you listen to the story, you, you would remember that Job experiences this with great intensity, doesn't he? He doesn't know what's gone on in the heavenly council doesn't know that God has accepted a wager with Satan in which Job would be tested with severe suffering to see if he would stay true to God and continue to fear him. I mean, imagine, just imagine, and maybe it's actually not that hard to imagine for some of us. Imagine if you were Job in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. In fact, have a look in your Bibles there. Chapter 1, verse 3. The greatest man in the east in terms of his wealth, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pair of oxen, 500 donkeys. With seven sons and three daughters, he had, kind of in biblical terms, the complete family. But he was also the greatest man in the East in terms of his morality. See verse 1, he's upright and blameless in his wisdom. He fears God and shuns evil. That's the Bible's definition for wisdom. And even in terms of his spirituality, he offers sacrifices on behalf of his kids just in case they cursed God in their hearts during a round of feasting. And yet this man, blameless, upright, experiences the loss of all his livestock, which is all his wealth, the loss of his sons and daughters, and then debilitating physical illness in chapter 2 at the hands of Satan. And his suffering is just so intense 
that when his friends come to visit, they can barely recognize him. It says in chapter 2, verse 12. The suffering experienced by Job is very real. And uh, we need to recognize that suffering, even innocent suffering, is part of the Christian life. I mean, I, I hope you don't think that by trying to live for Jesus, you've somehow maneuvered God into a corner where he now owes you in return a pain-free existence. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And I think as Christians, we tend to underplay suffering. Uh, it's too greedy for us to talk about or think about too much. I mean, partly that's just an Australian thing anyway. Uh, Mrs. and I were watching this uh, American show. It's about a college football team, actually a high school football team. And uh, one of the things we've noticed is the Americans, they're just so into everything, like 150%. So this is how Americans wave, I think. I think they wave like this, right? Now, if you're British, I uh, love the Brits, so they're a bit more reserved, right? So this is the archetypal British wave. It's like this, isn't it? You have to say. In Australian cities, we're, we're a bit more minimal. So you're walking along, you might put your hand up like that. Hi. But have you noticed that when you go out bush, it gets even more minimal? So two hours west of here, you're driving along. This is a wave. Just that. And if you go any further west than that, this is all it is. G'day, how you going? Just a single digit raised. <laughs> That's a wave, apparently. <laughs> Uh, in the bush. You know, if somebody from the bush says they've been a bit crook, you don't know what it means. It probably means they've got the whole head stuck in a combine harvester, <laughs> separate from their body. You know, I think as Aussies, we tend to understate, we tend to minimize uh, all things, uh, and including suffering. And really, I just wonder if that's a, a form of denial. Uh, it, it's one way we just try to show that we've got it all together. You know, we don't, don't make a big fuss about things. But you won't see Job do that. He, he doesn't deny that a problem exists. He doesn't deny his suffering. You see it in his actions at the end of chapter 1 and 2. Uh, you also hear it in his words, beginning at chapter 3, verse 1. So have a look at those in your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And he said, may the day of my birth perish. The night that said, a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. You drop down to verse 24. For sighing has become my daily food, and my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me, and I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, but only turmoil. It's real all right, isn't it? It affects every aspect of his life, his wealth, his family, his respect, his standing in society, his physical and mental health. Consumes every aspect of his life and there's no point denying it. Neither for Job nor for us in similar situations. We do live in a world where suffering, even innocent suffering, takes place. And when that happens to us, like it happened to Job, it is frankly better to, to gasp in despair, to confess a loss of hope, or a sense of frustration, than it is just to pre pretend that everything's okay. And I think God will not blame us for such honesty. But secondly, uh, today, there is something even more important that Job has to teach us about suffering. And in some ways, it's kind of the main message or the presenting issue of the book of Job. And that is that suffering is not necessarily God's punishment for your sin. If you suffer... That's not God's coded way of saying that you've been naughty. 
or that you lack faith. You know why I think uh, one of the most unhelpful things that Christians do, and you know, sometimes I think we're masters at unhelpful things, but uh, one of the most unhelpful things Christians can do is describe the judgment of God when there's an incidence of suffering. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if all of us have heard a story of a kid who's suffering an awful ailment, costing her parents a fortune to treat, and then some other Christian says to the parents, oh, your child must be sick because you've sinned, or you don't have enough faith. You think, thank you for that encouragement. Very helpful. Or, uh, you know, when there's a natural disaster and you just kind of hear some doofus pastor come out and say, well, look, the reason why there's been that natural disaster is the moral failings of the people who live there. You know, the bushfires happened because... Uh, You know, that state relaxed relaxed its abortion laws or the tsunami hit because dot, dot, dot. And, um, you know, the disciples said pretty much the same thing in John chapter 9 when when they were confronted with a blind man who was right before them. They said to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? But, you know, in John chapter 9, Jesus doesn't let the disciples draw that connection and the book of Job doesn't let us draw that connection. Suffering may not mean that you've sinned at all. I mean, look at the evidence of Job's life for starters. He's described in Job 1 verse 1, blameless and upright, a man who feared God and shunned evil. We see him as a man who takes not just his own sins seriously, but even the potential sins of his family. And yet he's struck with awful calamity. Still, he doesn't sin by cursing God. And despite his righteousness throughout chapter 1 that we read, He is struck with painful sores all over his body in chapter 2. And they're so painful, in fact, that the relief that scraping his sores with broken pottery, well, that was worth any added injury that it might have caused him. And his wife begs him to curse God and die so that his suffering might end. And still he refuses to sin in what he says about God. Make no mistake, people. Bad things can happen to good folks and suffering is not necessarily God's punishment for your sin innocent suffering happens and though Job's suffering is manifold and intense nowhere in the book of Job does the author or even God record a single sin of Job you can also uh, see that suffering is not directly God's punishment from your sin or for your sin from the way that Job's friends talk three friends come to comfort Job and as I said as they come close they barely recognize him his suffering is just it's so severe and they sit with him for seven days in silence just there in the dust and when the silence is broken Job's friends start saying that his suffering is because of his personal sinfulness Uh, I mean have a look in uh, chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 he has a friend called Eliphaz this is what Eliphaz says to him consider now I mean, he's theologizing, right? Ruminating, philosophizing. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, he's saying, Job, your suffering shows us that you're not innocent. You have been evil, so now you suffer evil. And boy, doesn't it sound simple? It sounds neat and tidy and simple, doesn't it? You do good, good comes back to you. You play with fire, you get burned. What goes around comes around. The formula is very simple, say the friends. You do good, you get rewarded immediately. You do evil, you get punished directly. But that is karma. And it's not the gospel. 
And it's not the way that God works. And so what does God eventually say about Job's friend and their, and their simplistic little religious formula? Chapter 42, verse 7, God says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. I mean, some people will um, suffer directly on account of their sins, won't they? Uh, If I get caught drink driving, lose my job, you just have to say fair enough, right? Fair enough. But Job clearly shows us that suffering is not simplistic, not mathematically the result of your sin. The book just does not let you do that. Now let's, um, let's just tangent in a way while we're on the topic of friends just uh, let's think briefly about how to be helpful to those people who are in pain you would think if you were Job that the arrival of three buddies would bring relief and yet it doesn't in fact the best thing his friends do as far as I can see is when they just sit with him for seven days in silence just there sharing in his pain empathizing as soon as they open their mouths, it becomes clear that wise words can help someone who's suffering, but foolish words and simple little religious platitudes and formulas, well, they make it even worse. The majority of the book, those chapters between 3 and 37, uh, that contain the conversation and the dialogue between the friends, you know, none of what they say makes Job feel any better. Instead of comforting in him, They add to his suffering. He even cries out in chapter 16. He says, I've heard many things like this. Miserable comforters. The whole lot of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? (laughs) What's going on with you that you have to keep arguing with me? There is power in a well-timed word, isn't there? But suffering can be increased if a person's friends say foolish things. Let us say wise things. And let us be better listeners than talkers. But let's keep moving. I mean, the question is, what does cause Job's suffering if it's not linked with his sin? What is it linked to? Hopefully you can see behind Job's suffering there is a force of evil in the world. And behind the evil in the world there is a personal force called Satan or the accuser. The one who is always accusing and always trying to deceive the people of God. Even behind him stands God, who is purposely restraining Satan, although not fully restraining evil in our world. And we're going to talk more about that next week when we look at the, um, the, the really vexing question of evil, the problem of evil in our world. But for now, we just need to see life is it's just not as simple as you do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you suffer immediately. And also for now, I think it will help if we just at least catch a glimpse of what God is doing with our suffering, because... Part of what he is doing is drawing close to us. You know, we may never find or discover what other good comes from our personal turmoil. We may never find out. God's thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways above our ways. There are things going on in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual world, that we just don't have eyes to see. You know, Job never finds out how his personal faithfulness under severe suffering, vindicates God before Satan and all the angels. But in Job's life, his suffering does draw him into a closer relationship and understanding of God. If you've ever read the whole book, you know that in much of those middle chapters, Job cries out incessantly. He, he, he wants an audience with God. In a way, he wants to put God in the dock. 
And when God eventually breaks his silence, he literally takes Job's breath away, blows his mind. He's drawn closer to him and uh, you just think, that could not have happened had Job not suffered. That relationship with God would not have been as rich, it would not have been as deep, it would not have been as sweet had he not experienced the pain beforehand. I mean, who can understand all the time why bad things happen to good people? Can't, man. God's thoughts are above our thoughts, and yet there are some things in life with God that we can learn in no other way than to go through suffering. It's why it's so right for Job to cry out, and why it would have been so wrong for him to charge God with wrongdoing. Uh, I knew a Christian guy who was about my age. Uh, You know what, he still is about my age, because that's the way age works really, isn't it? Uh, we got married uh, about the same time, uh, but only, a couple, uh, af- only after a couple of years of being married, his wife felt unwell and they went to the hospital and she was diagnosed with a form of uh, meningitis which completely changed her personality. Um, so much so that she didn't recognise him anymore and she was scared of him. She would scream hysterically whenever he was in the same room as her. And you look at that situation and you think, man, they should have 50 years of happiness and holidays and childbirth and birthdays. But as a 25-year-old, I mean, a young man, he could not even be in the same room as the woman that he loved and married. And the woman that he loved and married has completely changed through no fault of her own. Now, what does he do? What do you do if you're in that same situation? Curse God to his face? Charge God with wrongdoing? Curse God and die? Actually, no. Remarkably like Job, he, he recognised that bad things sometimes do happen to good people and though he doesn't understand the mystery of it all, he was drawn closer to God. That's a true story and, you know, in some ways you think it sounds like a bit of a one-off, but I could tell you a dozen others like it and I suspect you could tell me a dozen others like it too. question is, when you suffer innocently, will you push God away or will you seek him? When you suffer, there will often be mystery. The question is, will there also be faith? There was faith in that guy's life. There was faith in Job's life. Will it be there in our lives? I suspect that one of the reasons why God doesn't just jump in, stop our suffering at that point, is the fact that suffering is just one of the ways that he actually works out good purposes. It's one of the ways that he strengthens believers. And, you know, you can prepare yourself for that day of trial by reading a book or by listening to a sermon, but you cannot become mature and complete without persevering through suffering. There's just no other way to learn that lesson. There's no other way to make that progress. There's no other way to grow in that manner. I suspect that suffering is also one of the ways that God speaks to a world that It's so busy and so noisy in its attempts to shut him out. You remember what C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia stuff, you know what he said about suffering? He said it's God's way, actually he said it's God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, it's not always punishment, suffering. It's, It's not even always discipline and correction. Sometimes it's a warning. And sometimes it's even an invitation to draw closer to him. There will be some who say that suffering actually proves that God isn't real, he's not there, or at the very least he's not powerful or caring, or both. 
Uh, and you have to admit that the, just the presence of suffering is one of the most kind of pressing obstacles in the minds of unbelievers. Uh, you might be an unbeliever here this morning and you might be thinking, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. How could God be loving if he lets it happen? Surely he is powerless to stop suffering. I mean, there's just so much suffering out there as well as in here. The sheer scale of worldwide misery causes even the sturdiest believer to waver a little. But let me say, um, you know, kind of humbly and respectfully, if you think suffering is a problem for the Christian faith, it's a bigger problem for the unbeliever. Because if there is no God, there is no meaning whatsoever in any suffering. There's no redeeming goodness to come out of it. I mean, it's just there. If God does not exist, you can't even say that suffering is wrong. It's just there, isn't it? Of course, it feels wrong. But without God, can you even have things as good as uh, things like good and evil? I mean, aren't you just left with physical forces? Aren't you just left with strong and weak? Survival and frailty. If you think the presence of suffering is a killer for believers, it's even more troubling for unbelievers. And uh, I doubt that we will ever have a a fully satisfying answer to the question, the issue of suffering while we're clothed in this mortal flesh. And I take it that we will understand more in the life to come when God himself will wipe away every tear and there'll be no more crying or dying or pain. Bring on that day. But something that provides comfort in the time between then and now is that God knows what it is like to be without sin and yet suffer loss. Thirdly, Lastly and quickly, he knows what it's like to suffer. I wonder if you made or you picked up any connection between the Lord Jesus Christ and Job. Both are blameless and upright. Both fear God and shun evil. Uh, You could say of both of them there was not a man like him anywhere in the world. Both offer up sacrifices for the sins of others. Job for his children. Jesus, of course, when he offered himself up unto death on a cross for our sins in our place. I mean, man, you talk about carrying scars, right? Do you think the pain of Job is lost on God? Surely not. For God knew from before the beginning of time that he would send his own son to death for the sake of others. That is, sinners like you and I. Before Job was ever dreamed up by his parents, God had predestined losing his most precious one, the Lord Jesus, on the cross. You ever thought about that? You ever pondered the divisive agony of the cross? You ever thought about the innocent blood shed by Christ? You ever considered that his tears were shed not because of his own evil, but because it was the only way of dealing with our own evil? You and I are not alone in innocent suffering. Job is not alone in innocent suffering. As an innocent sufferer, Job is a companion to Jesus. And to our Heavenly Father, because even God knows what it is like to suffer. I realize that may not be a complete answer to this most troublesome of questions, but it is a comfort for the time between. Now as we finish, Job 1 and 2, they tell a story of almost unparalleled suffering poured out upon a man of almost unparalleled integrity and righteousness. And what do we make of that suffering? Is it because Job is evil? Is it because God is evil? Well, we've seen this morning it goes beyond simple answers like that. And so the question is really, what will we do when suffering crashes in upon our lives? Shall we curse God and make Satan happy? 
Shall we deny God as evil? Or will we concede that in the mystery, somehow he is doing something remarkable? Surely the pain of Jesus' own death tells us that is true. And will we therefore follow him in faith, even if we don't have all the answers? I'm going to pray that as a people we do just that. Why don't you join with me in prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father God, we do thank you for this uh, book of Job. Uh, We thank you for just the ground level, realistic way it depicts the world, a place where suffering is real, though we often deny it, try to cover it up or minimize it. Uh, We recognize that, um, you know, good things happen to, or bad things happen to good people. And there's not a simple little mathematical formula at play here. There's a mystery. And Lord, in that mystery, we want to be people who love you and serve you and seek you and are drawn closer to you. So help us, amid the mystery, respond to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.